Hey there, Duke fans. This is episode 72 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We are recording this on Sunday, February 19th, and once again, it is a packed show. We're going to recap the victories this week against uh, this past week against Virginia and Wake Forest. We'll preview our games coming up this week on the road at Syracuse and Miami, and we've got a, a slew of other topics that we will cover in the world of Duke and the ACC. But first, as always, the whole team's here. We got Sam in Denver. What's up, Sam? Hey, good morning, Donald. I am doing fine. How are you? I'm doing just great. <laughs> and we got Jason, the AT alien. What's up, Jason? Why are, you, why are you laughing when you say you're doing fine, Sam? You know what? Shut up, Jason. For the record, on the record, we're... Sam is doing just fine. I'm doing fine. We're no, not starting the podcast quote. with inside jokes. We're not starting with inside jokes, right? No, okay, he's, fine, he, fine. he actually is okay. He, he woke up this morning, and it is earlier for him than it is us, and he is doing just fine. Um, but we are going to – let's just – we have a bunch of stuff, so let's start. Um, we'll start with the UVA game on Wednesday night. Probably the best second half of the season. Um, UVA uh, on the road, we win 65-55. to 55. Uh, start with Sam. Sam, give me your thoughts on that game and, and what you saw. Uh, apparently, I mean, apparently Jason Tatum woke up and said he was going to play ball. Yeah, so I had, a, I had a couple of those moments that I like to talk about where I'm watching the game and uh, something happens, something amazing happens on the screen and my jaw just drops and I just kind of like tilt my head to the side and, and lose focus for a second. That happened a couple times um, when I was watching the Jason Tatum show on Wednesday night. Really impressed with his performance. Really impressed with uh, with Duke's ability to to play at Virginia's pace, but to not uh, but to not really change the game plan. I think that early in the game, Duke Duke got down and they weren't able to score at first because I think they were they were going through that adjustment and it took some time for them to be like, okay, this is how we this is how we can move the ball in these really long possessions. This is how we maintain focus on defense, that kind of stuff. Um, and once they once they figured that out, I thought that. They they really took control of it. Now, you could say on the on 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 the one hand, yeah, it was really impressive. On the other hand, maybe there's a bit of concern that the game was really won on on jump shooting, uh, and that and that might not be the most sustainable way to win. But I'll take it because I think that you know we've seen it, in this recent winning streak different guys grabbing hold of the offense each game. It, it might be you know we'll talk about Wake in a second, and Kennard was really impressive against Wake. Uh, it was Tatum against uh, against UVA. Lots of different guys are contributing, and it would be a problem, I think, if it was one player who we were constantly relying on to score a bunch of uh, jump shots. But that's not really the case. I think that they're spreading it around, and on a given night, one or two or three different guys are all able to to pour in a lot of shots. And and I think that it's working, even though it's not game to game the most consistent like output. And and I think when we talk about wake, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. How, you know, this team can play one game in one fashion. They can play another game in a totally different fashion with the same group of players. Jason, what do you think? That's an awesome observation. Yeah. I, I I love, you know, sometimes we come up with stuff that, that I think I'm I'm like, wow, that was hey Sam. That was really, I love that. The fact that we can play different. I am on top of my game today. All right. I'm, I'm very, very, very impressed. Jiminy Christmas, that was a really, really good comment. <laughs> uh, I loved what Coach K said after the game. Um, not just the fact that he said Jiminy Christmas, which it's just so 1950s of him. Well, um, he is 70 years that, old. 
he is 70 years old. Yes. Uh, I thought it was really interesting after the game that Coach K said that he went away in this game from calling offensive plays and sort, you know, trying to run different patterns and things and, and just put in a system where, hey, guys, move the ball around, and if you can make a play, make a play, um, where he sort of turned over offensive responsibility to, to the players who are truly wonderful creators with the ball. Um, I, you know, I don't know that this is the, the, the best, greatest system long-term, but it, it sure worked nicely against a really, really good Virginia team, mostly because Jason Tatum was out of his mind. And, and by the way, I, I, I want to mention something. Earlier this season, I said that when Jason Tatum is going toward the basket, um, he is a, uh, you know, a truly, truly great college player, and that when he's taking contested jumpers or fading away, I didn't think he was as good a player. Um, Jason, I apologize. <laughs> because against UVA, he took a lot of contested th- jumpers, and he made all of them. It was, it was, cra- it was ridiculous, uh, the, you know, his shooting. Um, and and I, I kind of like the fact that uh, we had to then turn around and play really good, really hard defense on the other end to win the game, um, and that we didn't just say, oh, Tatum's shooting lights out, you know, and, and just figure that, that Tatum would magically lift us to victory, that uh, we did have to, have to play hard at the other end um, to, to, get this, to get this win. Now, I mean, Virginia is a team that is swooning and, and is really, really, really struggling on offense, and they really struggled against us. They, then last night they played UNC, and they were even worse. Uh, they may have scored more points against Carolina, but... But from an no, efficiency they not, standpoint, they did not score more points against Carolina. They scored forty-one points against Carolina. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was looking at the <laughs> wrong end of the score. They, they are they're in terrible, terrible shape on offense. But um, I, I still give credit to Duke to, for playing really, really hard defensively. Um, I, I thought we did denied Virginia the kind of shots they wanted to take. Um, uh, you know, Virginia is best when London Prantis is taking the ball at the hole. And and we really we didn't let him get uh, to the rack the way he's capable of, um, uh, you know, and that's because we played strong strong perimeter defense. Virginia's got nothing inside; they 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 just can't. There's no way they can generate inside out offense. Um, uh, and it's a great win. Look, it, it it's easy to turn around and look at how Carolina handled Virginia and go, oh, North Carolina is still clearly better than Duke. They played the same team in the same week, and Duke had a really, really, really hard-fought win, and Carolina coasted. But that was playing home versus playing on the road. Uh, and there's a, there is such a massive gulf, huge difference in, in the ACC in playing at your place and playing on the road. Um, UVA especially. I, UVA's, UVA's lost, I think what the stat was, they've lost three games at home the last three years, and we're two of them. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, they don't, they don't lose in John Paul Jones Arena very often. Right, and I think Carolina is going to find out about that. They still have to go play at Virginia, um, uh, it, you know, in the next week or so. And Carolina is going to find out how much tougher Virginia is at home versus on the road. And I think he'll and, be playing. And don't at- be surprised. And don't be surprised if UVA wins that game. No, no, not at all, not at all. But but I I just thought you know, this was a spectacular effort by Duke uh, against Virginia. Um, uh, you know, it, it it was a game where where really uh, Tatum was the only guy. Who who was hitting it offensively? I mean, Luke Kennard was the only other player in double figures. He had 16 points, but it was all free throws. It was all late in the game at the free throw line. 
Um, but but uh, uh, it, a very uh, an encouraging win. Um, arguably, you know, I'd say one of the top two or three games of the season for Duke. Um, and and this team keeps on setting the bar a little bit higher. They keep on playing better and better and better. I'm not so sure about the Wake game, but but uh, you know this Virginia game coming on top of what we've done lately. Um, you know, we put ourselves in great great position. So there's two stats that I want to highlight, and I'm highlighting them for different reasons. The first one, you know, we when you look at the stats, it's, it shows that we only had eight assists, but I don't think that was a bad thing uh, against UVA. I think what happened was in the second half when Jason Tatum went off, uh, we resorted to uh, the, the game of get the ball to Jason because he was on fire. And when someone's on fire, you feed him the ball and watch him go. A lot of his moves aren't moves that are uh, – are shots that are created by somebody passing the ball is him creating using uh, his dribbling ability or just a separation from uh, the, from the defender. And I think he did that very well. He, once he entered that zone, he wasn't, he wasn't taking heat check shots. He was taking shots within the offense, even though they were contested, even though there's probably two or three guys in a couple of points in his face because of how hot he was, he was still taking shots within himself and, and, trusting his ability to to make those shots so i think that was a good thing the other thing that i always look at um especially with virginia because of how many points they usually score uh is how many shots they took and they took 57 shots which is a lot of shots for them uh they usually are taking in the 40s but when you factor in the fact they had 12 offensive rebounds that makes that stat a little bit more reasonable what i thought was incredible is that we only attempted 42 shots now granted we made all our free just about all our free throws we were 18 for 20 but shooting 42 shots doesn't necessarily yield a game that is a duke type of game this was a uva type of game that we won um a a style a tempo of slowing it down and 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 making it so that every possession counted and we talked about that last week uh, on the podcast that they need to make every possession count if they're going to slow the tempo way down to the type of tempo that uva likes and i think we beat them at their own game in the second half and i think that is uh an incredible thing to to feature as well uh so yesterday uh saturday uh duke came back home to face wake forest and in a game that almost added a, a notch to my 100 win or 100 point column uh, we fell one point short. We, we beat Wake 99 to 94 uh, in a game that was just very high tempo and, and filled with, uh, it was kind of weird when you compare it to the UVA game. So I'll start with you, Sam. What were your takeaways from that? What I, my takeaway is a question. What was the defensive game plan with John Collins? Because it seemed like he was able to get, not only was, was the ball able to get into him and he was able to get shots, but then he wasn't getting blocked out on rebounds and so he had a, a couple of baskets that were like putbacks or where they got quick offensive rebounds and he was able to get it to the hole. It seemed like Duke just didn't, wasn't going to mess around with, with trying to, you know, stop John Collins. It was like, let's stop everybody else, but stopping everybody else didn't exactly yield a, a well, well, wait, defensive so result. Here, here is what Duke, here's what Duke, Duke switches on defense. Right. Um, but then they didn't, but then there was no switching back. Well, and, we switched so quickly, like literally um, Collins would set even the, a baby little tiny like nothing screen. We would switch. Emil Jefferson would be guarding one of Wake's perimeter players and Luke Kennard 
or Grayson Allen, um, you know, or Frank, or, or Frank Jackson were suddenly guarding Collins and Collins would go down in the post. And I'm telling you, the hardest work that he had was raising his hand and waving it so that his players would see, hey, I'm down here with a guy five inches shorter than me um, who I outweigh by 60 pounds and, and you know, feed me the ball. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy for John Collins' burgeoning NBA career because he's, he's so gone. I mean, he, he oh, looked, yeah. he's yeah, so he's impressive a... against a, you know, a, a Duke team that usually hit, or recently has played good defense. I think that, you know, the, the hope here is that the defensive effort against Wake Forest was an aberration uh, as opposed to a trend, but, We'll see about it. Go, go ahead, Jason. It seemed like well, I think I, I was, I'm a, No, no, I'm going to tell you something interesting. So in the post-game comments, uh, and I don't have a transcript. I don't have exactly what Coach K said, but he kind of, he didn't come out and say this, but he sort of alluded to the fact that Duke just sort of decided, look, we're not going to be able to stop them. Uh, like at halftime, Duke said, you know, Collins is too good. Uh, we We can't. We can't switch and give you know guys like Crawford um, uh, you know open threes. So so let's just let's just try and outscore them. We're not we're not going to stop Wake Forest offensively. We're just going to try and outscore them. And like that was Duke's plan in the second half. Now it, it seems that seems crazy to me. <laughs> I'm I'm really surprised that that was what we were trying to do. But uh, you know the statistics don't say that's a bad thought against them. Wake is number eight in Ken Palm in offensive efficiency. They're number 155 in defense. They're one of the worst teams in the ACC defensively. Um, maybe it makes sense to just go, hey, uh, you know, let them go crazy. Let Collins get two pointers and let's try and get three pointers when we can and, and you know, stop them that way. I'll tell you one other thing that's kind of crazy about this Wake game. Uh, get, get this. John Collins had 31 points in his first 32 minutes on the floor. In the final two minutes of that ball game, he didn't touch the ball. He did, with that game, and it was a, it was a tight game. It was a one-possession game. Their and up, final, and down, and up and down affair. Yeah, their well, final few possessions. They, uh, uh, Childress took a three. Crawford made a three. And then Crawford was driving to the layup and, and, and had two layups that he missed. That was their final four possessions. Collins never touched the ball. And I, I like Danny Manning. I like Wake Forest. I hope Danny Manning is successful. Um, I think he's building some nice stuff there. And I'm really hoping that Wake, you know, can can maybe pull off a couple more wins down the stretch and make the NCAA tournament. They're right on the bubble. But but that's unforgivable in the final two minutes. Coll as great a game as John Collins had, he had to touch the ball in the final two minutes, and he didn't. And that's probably why Wake lost this game. Donald? Yeah, well, you're, you're mentioning the, the, the fact that they have a team that really has a foundation now that they haven't really had in, in the last few years. Um, they do need a lot of work to make the NCAA tournament. In, in my opinion, there's, I mean, after this, they're 6-9. and nine. This beating us would have really helped their resume, but I think they probably need a couple more signature wins uh, to get in. But I, I think that what you said was right. I think there was a point where we just said, we're just going to, you know, score more points than the other team. And that's, what's going to win this game. Um, they, they attempted 69 shots and made just over 50% of them. So they were hitting at an amazing clip. They were, they were rebounding very well. 
There wasn't a lot of turnovers. They only had four turnovers. We only had seven. So it was really just teams that were going at each other one by one, you know, shot after shot, back and forth. And it made for kind of a, a, a game where if you checked your blood pressure after the game, it was probably spiked uh, after the game was over. At least mine was. Uh, just because of the fact that it was just so, you know, run, you know, very atypical of a, of a Duke defensive performance. I think before the game, we were in the top 30 in Ken Palm and uh, adjusted defensive efficiency. And because of that game, we dropped to like 37. So that is something that, you know, it was also a stat that we had been steadily creeping up as the season, as the streak has gone on. Um, so it was kind of an aberration, I want to say. It, but I do like the fact that we can win in any condition now. You know, that was a game that, you know, a month ago we would have lost. And I, I think that is typical of what we're seeing in this improved team as, as the streak has continued. You know, it's very interesting to me. One disappointing thing to me from the Wake Forest game was that Giles and Bolden, especially Harry Giles, just didn't get much burn at all. Um, and I thought, I really felt like there were moments against Virginia. I thought Harry Giles was great against Virginia at times. And, I, and, and we've been seeing his minutes build up and up and his role on the team get to be you know bigger and bigger. And they're still not really looking for him inside. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I sort of feel like you know, oh, there's going to be a game sometime soon where, where he, he, he explodes a little bit. Maybe it's not, you know, not, I'm not talking about a 20 and 10 explosion, but maybe it's a, a you know, a, a 14 and 8 kind of explosion um, where, you know, where he almost splits minutes exactly with Emil Jefferson, which is what he did against Virginia. Jefferson got in some foul trouble and Giles played 19 minutes. Jefferson played 21. Um, and, and I'd really hope that we would see more of him against Wake. And, and he didn't play against Wake. Guys, are you, are, are we going to ever see Harry Giles and, and Marquise Bolden playing consistent double-digit minutes? I think, that, I think that you have just uh, segued us to the next topic. Okay, so we're going to tie this into – we were going to talk about the ACC race in general because, you know, don't look now. We're one game back of UNC. Um in the ACC, but it led to a question that spurred uh, from a comment that Coach K made in the press conference after the Wake game yesterday, where he was talking about the possibility of resting players like Emil Jefferson and Grayson Allen down the stretch so that they're fresh for uh, March Madness for the ACC tournament and the NCAA tournament. Well, well wait, 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 it's not just so they're fresh, it's because Jefferson and, they're and nagging, Allen... And they're, they're battling injuries. Yeah, yeah. Right, exactly, exactly. And, and it's it's coach K I think recognizes that our chances of winning in March uh, go up exponentially if we have a healthy Emil Jefferson and Grayson Allen. And right now, neither one of them are healthy. They're not so unhealthy that they can't play. I mean, clearly they can play. They can, they're each playing 30 plus minutes a game, but right. yeah, the question is, so here's if they, the question. If they don't the play 30 question. minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So here's the main question now. I, and, and this is a question that kind of spurs from that. The question is, we, we are a team that prides itself on ACC championships, national championships. But the regular season title is not really viewed as uh, highly as the ACC tournament and then the NCAA tournament, for, for example. Unbalanced we, schedule, it's meaningless. It's mean, I'm going to talk about this in a second. It's meaningless. So, but the question is, do we feel like we should be resting players like Emil Jefferson, Grayson Allen, uh, our star players, to have them fresh for March at the risk of 
dropping our status uh, in, in the ACC or dropping our rank in the ACC. And for example, you know, do we miss out on the, on the first day of uh, the first round by uh, in the ACC tournament uh, at the, at, you know, to rest these players? Or do we say we want to be as high a seed as possible in the ACC tournament and we want these guys to play and keep this momentum going and th- at the risk of them not being 100% in March? Uh, I'll start. With, I mean, Jason, you got thoughts on it, so we'll go to you. Well, I, I'm tempted to turn this back on you because my answer to this question is how much rest? Like, uh, you know, does rest them mean that they sit out one game, two games, three games? Does rest them mean that they play Reduce 15 minutes. or 20 minutes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. And, and, and the other corollary to that is how much does it make a difference? Because there's been some talk, there's been some thought that uh, Emil's, uh, Emil Jefferson's nagging injury, rest won't necessarily take, it's just, it's a time thing, and that rest mm-hmm. won't necessarily take care of it. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if these things were absolutes and I could track it on a graph or something like that, and if you said to me, oh, if they don't play for two games, they will be fully healthy, then I would say they don't play for two games. Uh, to me, that's not even a question because the degree to which they are better in March um, if they're healthy is huge. Um, no one, no one will remember whether Duke won the ACC regular season um, come although the end do, of this season. Although they do get to hang a banner for it, right? Okay, that's nice. No one, <laughs> no one will remember it. No one will care if we win the NCAA title. It'll be, it'll be good. Uh, it's just good trivia fodder for future, um, future Kville uh, challenges. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I, and I don't know if, it, you know what, before I, I, I got a whole thing I want to talk about regarding the stop of the ACC standings and the ACC race, but I'm going to put it aside for a second. So my answer is, if you can tell me these guys are definitely going to get better, that it's going to help them, sit them. Sit them, and, and and I and I love the chance. And you guys alluded to this a moment ago. I love the fact that it would it would force Duke to play Giles and Bolden more. Um, it would force us to play. Uh, you know, it, it probably would mean Jack White would start getting some minutes if you're resting Grayson Allen. I, I think because you got to go to one more perimeter player, and I'm guessing that that's Jack White. Or, or you know, I, I'm not sure how the rotation moves. But uh, I, 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 by the way, I would not be in favor of resting them if it meant. That all the the, the regulars, um, plus maybe one other guy, are suddenly playing thirty eight or forty minutes. I don't want Luke Kennard, you know, exhausted playing forty minutes a game um, because of that. I, well, I want those all those all those guys are already playing thirty plus minutes, right? Yeah, but 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 let's not make it even worse. I, I I would I would love I want those minutes to go to to Jackson and White and Bolden and Giles. Uh, I think you know, that the, I, I think that you hit on the the important thing here, which is that um, specifically with Giles and Bolden, and maybe to a lesser extent those other guys you mentioned, that those guys were expected to be contributors this year. They obviously haven't been because of injury, and at this point in the season, according to sort of the normal Coach K standard practice, they're not going to get an opportunity to become part of the rotation because the rotation's already set. However, if this if these injuries to to Allen and Jefferson, as you said, if they can be fixed by a day or by a game or two of rest, then, you know, you have the opportunity, Coach K has the opportunity to put those guys in, give them bigger minutes, see what happens, and 
sort of go against his his standard practice. I think that if Duke didn't have those guys on the on the team, if if they were you know if they were the same team they were today, but Giles and Bolden were not sitting there as you know Giles being a probably first round pick this year, Bolden maybe this year, maybe next year. If they weren't sitting on the bench waiting for that, then this would be a, a tougher question, I think. But the you know you kind of you look at the whole circumstance, and I think that Duke could really benefit from it, and that you know there were times this year when each of those guys you know Jefferson missed some time earlier this year, Allen missed some time earlier this year, and Duke was still able to pull out victories. So I think that you got to look at who's going in for them. And yeah, I agree with you. I don't want it to look like last year's rotation where there's like five guys playing 35 minutes. So so let's see those other guys and let's see them come in. I don't know that I agree with you so much, Jason. I want to see like White and Frankovich and, and Delorier. I, I just don't know that we've seen any of them really much in, in ACC play. And I'm not excited by the idea of having them jump into the rotation now. Maybe it would work, but um, but I really want to see more of Giles and Bolden. And maybe we can see more of that big lineup that we talked about, you know, playing them together with Tatum and, and see how that goes. So I oh, think, yeah, oh, I, I hadn't even thought about that. But the reason I mentioned Jack White was because I was thinking we need another perimeter guy. Um, but but you're right. I mean, uh, we could we could go big and Tatum could move out to the perimeter, which is probably where he's most comfortable anyway. Yeah, go down. Harry Giles and Harry Giles is a power forward, you know, looking at his future. Um, he and, and he's shown yes. a couple times this yes. year that he's able to, like, make the elbow jump or he can step out. A little, I don't think he's taking threes or anything, but in high can, school, he did. In high school, he he shot three pointers. That's but when why when, did he? Why would he do that? <laughs> what a waste! <laughs> he was, because he, was he so could make them. than everybody else. Because he could make them. I mean, yeah. the, the the Harry Giles that was the number one player in the in the high school class was a guy who was an athletic freak who could dominate you inside, but he was also capable of of stepping out and and hitting. You know. It probably was mostly uncontested, but but he was capable. He's certainly capable of stepping out to fifteen, seventeen, and and you know if you leave him open at the three point line in high school and in high school, you know in summer uh, AAU tournaments and things like that, he was capable of hitting those shots. He has not, you know, not since he had you know two ACLs, but before he did. My take on this is is, is twofold. You know, I think it's very important to have you know Grayson Allen and Emil Jefferson. At 100% from March, do I think that mean? And, and I agree with you. If it, if it meant that, hey, if we knew two games was the was the was the Robitussin that they need to get back to 100%, then do it. But I think the reason why I want to see a few more minutes from you know Harry Giles, Frank Jackson, Marquise Bolden, Chase Jeter, uh, if when he gets healthy, I, we need him back too. I think it's because you know since I started at Duke, since I really started following uh, 2001, 2010, 2015. The thing that connects those three teams that won national championships is that at a certain point in March, we had to rely on somebody that we had not relied on the entire season. And we had some people step up that were in positions, whether it was foul trouble, whether it was due to injuries, they stepped up at a time that was needed the most, and it was from an unlikely source. Um, and I think that is what we have to help these guys prepare for. You know, there's going to be a time that we're going to rely on Marquise Bolden because somebody's in foul trouble or Harry Giles because someone's in foul trouble or Frank Jackson's going to have to step up and score some points. 
these guys, uh, and even, you know, to a lesser degree, like Chase Jeter might, we might need Chase Jeter during March Madness to come in and get a few rebounds and, and play some stellar defense. Javon Deloria, we might need him to come in and, and play, play some athletic basketball. These guys need to be ready in March to be called upon when the chips are down, when we, we have Emil Jefferson with four fouls and there's, you know, 10 minutes left in the game. These guys are going to have to step up. And I think getting these minutes now is going to tell them and give them the confidence that when push comes to shove, Coach K still trusts in this team. And it's going to take everyone on this team that contributes minutes to contribute the best minutes of their season right now. And so I think that is, you know, it, it's a twofold situation. Yes, we want these, the, our veterans healthy, but we also want the, the young guys and the guys that don't get as much play to know that come, t- come crunch time, they can be counted on uh, in a crisis, so to speak. So, Donald, hey, Don, are, you, Donald, are you suggesting that Jack White have a 2015 Grayson Allen NCAA tournament run? Possibly. I mean, if you think about it, Grayson Allen, we were not expecting Grayson Allen to go off in the Final Four, but he did. And well, that was he did have re- a couple games. He did have a couple games late in the regular season where the he, Wake Forest, where the he, Wake Forest game in the regular correct. season last year, yeah. he outscored Wake Forest in the first half. I was at but that game. It was but, unreal. You know, but at that game, we're not sitting there after that saying, "Well, we need to get the ball more to Grayson Allen because he's going to be the reason we win." We were counting. We were still counting on Jalil Okafor. We were still counting on Tyus Jones. We were still counting on Justice Winslow and those guys. But when he stepped up in the Final Four on the grandest stage of college basketball. People were still like, wow, this kid came out of nowhere and this kid stepped up at a time that we weren't counting on him to do so. But it mattered. And I think that is what these guys that are on the bench that are not getting as many minutes now, that's what they need to be pushing for because it could be them that by, by the way, spurs, spurs the run that takes us all the way to Phoenix. But by the way, so history lesson time for folks who are wondering who Donald is talking about. We already gave away 2015 was Grayson Allen. 2010, I'm guessing you're talking about the zoo beard, yep. Zubek, right? Well, that was, do you remember the, the, the craziest thing about the Zubek experience? Do you remember why Zubek was inserted into the starting lineup that year? It no. was after, so it, I, I think I'm getting the games right. It was after UNC and Lance Thomas had hurt himself and there was talk that, um, that oh, Thomas might not be able to start. He might not be able to, it, at the time, Thomas was starting alongside Miles Plumley. Right, and right. Who was, a, who was a sophomore at the time. And they were saying that, like, leading up to the Maryland game, the famous Zubek-Maryland game, they were like, oh, not clear if Thomas is going to be able to go uh, or if he's going to have to play limited minutes. They might, have to put in, they might have to put him on the bench. And then Coach K just threw everybody for a loop, had Thomas start next to Zubek so that Thomas wasn't relied on as much to get the rebounding. Zubek went off, and then all of a sudden that was the starting lineup for the rest of the season. And whatever was wrong with his knee or something just like magically solved itself. So and Z- uh, and Zubek Zubek turned into like one of the great offensive rebounders in Duke history for for the well, back half of the season. He already was he already was at that point. He just wasn't getting a lot of minutes. And for whatever reason, I guess Kay wanted the experience of Zubek in there um, more late in the season when when I guess he thought that that Lance Thomas wasn't going to be as healthy as as he had been. And and it turned out. I mean, as as we all know, it turned out magically. But um, really, then, like a, yeah. I was go gonna ahead. say, and then going back to two thousand one, you were talking about Casey Sanders and Reggie Love, right? Yes, I am. Because Absolutely. Carlos Boozer, Carlos Boozer broke a bone in his hand or his foot, or I forget where it, it was. Foot. The fifth metatarsal, the one that played just for like it still yes. plays us for. Decades. I was gonna say it was, a, it was a Duke injury; it had to be to his foot. Yeah, against Maryland on senior night, and. 
uh, the, the it's famous over. words after that was it's, it's, it's over post, but the famous words that Coach K said for that team after the game was, this team is about to win the national championship. And they enlisted the help of Carla, or Casey Sanders and Reggie Love. And those two guys who had not been counted on much for the entire season came in and just destroyed everybody that they touched. Uh, and that Reggie combined Love with a the football player. Yeah, combined Reggie with Reggie Love, a football player. Yeah. Yeah. So those that's, type that's, of guys, that's what, that's what we're looking for. Every single one of these runs, somebody steps up at a moment that we need it, and it's, it's usually an unlikely source. Uh, we, I mean, everyone's going to know that, you know, if Grayson is in the game, he's going to score. Luke's going to score. You know, Emil's going to play defense. Matt Jones is going to play defense. But who is it on the bench that's going to step up at a moment that we need something, a spark, and provide it and to make everybody go, huh, we did not account for insert random player to go off like that. That's what wins championships. I love it. It's a great, it's an awesome point. Um, you guys are, are kicking it out of the park today, and I'm not. Um, so I'm going to try now. Uh, I want to get back to the ACC race, and I want to talk about something. Um, James Armstrong, everyone knows the name James Armstrong. He's one of the sort of uh, original uh, DBR um, he wasn't one of the founders, but he was one of the uh, leaders of the DBR for many, many years, designed a lot of the software uh, and websites that the DBR was part of. I'm on an email list with James Armstrong, and James sent an interesting email yesterday afternoon. This was prior to Virginia playing UNC at UNC, um, but he was pointing out the absurdity of the ACC regular season race and the imbalanced schedule. Um, if you look at the top of the ACC standings, if you really look at the ACC at this point, you would say there are six teams that are a cut above everyone else. Um, maybe you feel like Syracuse peaks in there at number seven. I don't know. But the top six teams in the ACC unquestionably are UNC, Duke, Louisville, Notre Dame, Florida State, and Virginia. Any arguments, gentlemen? Not for me. No, no, no. Sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> So those, those six teams are clearly the best teams in the ACC. So we talked a little bit earlier about playing teams on the at home versus on the road and how difficult it is to play on the road and how much of an advantage you have playing at home. So of those six teams, I want you all to guess how many of them UNC gets to play at home. Don't guess because the number's five. They play five out of the six. The only one they don't play at home is themselves because you can't play yourself at home. You don't play a game against yourself. They play everybody at home. You know how many road games they have against the top of the ACC? Two. Duke and Virginia. That's it. They don't play Louisville on the road. They don't play Notre Dame on the road. They don't play Florida State on the road. That's an easy schedule. Oh, and what about our Blue Devils? So do you know how many home games we got against the top of the conference? Two, UNC and Florida State, by the way, the two toughest teams, uh, alongside Louisville, I guess. Uh, but those are the only two games we got at home. So how many road games do you think we got? Oh, we got everybody on the road. We played all these teams on the road. It's ridiculous how unbalanced the schedule is. And if you include Syracuse as the team that peaks in there, we also get Syracuse on the road. So of the top seven teams in the ACC... We get six of them on the road. We only get two of them at home. The ACC we, schedule. Go ahead. There's only so much crawling. There's only so much crawling you can do when you lose it at home to NC State. To be fair. Yeah, yeah, I know. And we're going to talk still, about NC. We're going to talk about yeah. NC State later in the podcast. But but my point is, and, and I'm not complaining. We you know the schedule is what it is. 
we play who we play, and if it happens to be tougher for us, that's life. But the the reality is putting any weight behind, putting any importance behind the ACC regular season title to me is meaningless when you have a situation where one team, Carolina, is vying for the title and they're playing everybody at home and another team, Duke, is vying for the title and we're pretty much playing everybody on the road. Because um, there's a minimum of a four, maybe five point difference in teams in the ACC, home versus road. Uh, it's so, so, so much harder to win. It'll um, make it It'll make it that much sweeter if Duke just wins out and takes the conference. There we go. There we go. There we Amen. Go. So anyway, so th- that that pointing that out and and tracking the home and the road games, James Armstrong did that. So thank you, James, for sending that to me. You know, you just made a soccer argument. That's a nice argument for uh, when people talk about you know regular season versus the playoffs in uh, Major League Soccer. They talk about the unbalanced schedule, and that is something that has been. Uh, for ACC, like especially if you remember back in the day when we only had you know nine teams and you played everybody twice, and it seemed like that was you know a lot of people want to go back to those days of of a balanced schedule um, before that for the reasons that you mentioned. So that's a that's a good argument. My I mean yeah. my my proposal has always been to just split the ACC into two divisions, and you can call them like the ACC, and then you could call the other division like the Big East, and then. Um, you just have all the traditional teams in the ACC playing each other. And, you know, at the end, we can just, like, play Syracuse or Notre Dame or someone for the championship. Who cares about these these new conferences? I like playing Syracuse and Notre Dame. Um, I mean, you can can drop Boston College and Pitt, as far as I'm concerned, but I like playing Syracuse and Notre Dame. Those Those are fun opponents. I suppose. Did we just segue to who we want to win the ACC? Sure, go for it. Yeah. So another question that we were posing internally uh, for this podcast was uh, this. I think Sam came up with this question is, you know, take Duke out of the equation because we obviously all want Duke to win the ACC. But if Duke can't win the ACC, who are you rooting for uh, to win the conference? And uh, I guess uh, Jason kind of alluded to where he was going. Uh, Jason, what do you think? Uh, so uh, the, the, the two teams that I would say I would – somewhat root for I, I i like notre dame i've talked a lot about notre dame on the podcast this year um i I, th- I think they play a fun brand of basketball i think they're you know they're really efficient on offense um i like mike bray both because of his duke connection um and and because i just feel like he's he's a really good coach he gets the most out of what he has notre dame notre dame does not bring in mcdonald's all-americans they don't bring in big-time recruits i mean how can you not like bonzi colson and and Steve Vestori and some of these other guys, these guys from Notre Dame, they play hard, and and they play clean. They don't, you know, there's not a lot of fouling in a Notre Dame game. <laughs> so uh, if it can't be Duke, I wouldn't mind if Notre Dame won. And then the other team is the team we just played, Wake Forest, um, because I like Danny Manning and I want him to succeed. And and Wake is another team that I feel like they play good basketball. They play hard. It's always a, a you know a, a, an exciting game when you play against them. So those are the two teams that that if Duke couldn't win it, that's who I would like to win it. Um, and then, you know, after those two, the next one for me would be Virginia um, for the opposite reason. They play hard, but they play hard on defense. So oh, those are the three I'll, teams that I sort of, I wouldn't be sad to see win. I'll take it from you. The, my, my thought about talking about this was while I was watching the Virginia game yesterday and they did that, uh, the Virginia UNC game and ESPN did that thing where they have Jay Billis walk across the court with the star player from the team and talk to him. 94 feet 94. with Jay or whatever. Yeah, 94 yeah. feet with Jay. And the, so 
of course, he had London Francis doing it, but uh, London Francis insisted on having the rest of the team join him for the walk. So, so he was standing next to Billis, and they were walking down the court, and the whole UVA team, including the managers, were walking behind them in a big line. And and they talked a lot about about all the about all the teamwork and and how much they feel like one unit. And I I just really admire every time I watch Virginia. You know, the the brand of basketball is a little different, and I think you have to be. I think you have to be in the right mood to enjoy it appropriately. But that when you're watching Virginia and you watch watch the way their team operates and you watch Tony Bennett, I just can't help but think that like that is that's the kind of program that that Coach K built. You know, where where everybody's bought in, everybody believes in the team, and and that I, I just really admire the way that they play and and the way that they prepare. And that you know, we talk about on this show how when we have to go play UVA. It's not about forcing UVA to play our style. It's that we have to play the way they do to beat them. And I, I really admire just how much commitment they have to to that style and that system. And I think that if Duke wasn't going to win the ACC, I would be rooting for Virginia to do it because I admire the way that their program is run. So my my uh, two picks, uh, I had a homer pick and I had a realistic pick. So my homer pick is uh, – as you guys all know, Miami, um, my law school alma mater. I always root for them uh, when they're not playing Duke and hope that they basically go, uh, you know, 15 or 17 and, and one or two, depending on how many times they play us. Uh, so uh, obviously that would be my homer pick, but that is not a realistic pick uh, to win the ACC regular season. So I also went with UVA because I, I like Tony Bennett. I like his style of coaching. Uh, I think he's one of those guys that gets a lot out of players that other teams uh, probably wouldn't get as much out of um, or other coaches, I should say. So I, I always like that despite the fact that they're, you know, playing great defense and not scoring a lot, that they can still be successful uh, in this day and age of college basketball, where uh, a lot of teams pride themselves on scoring a lot of points. They're not doing that. They're, they're scoring very few points, but still winning a lot of, uh, ball games against tough opponents. So uh, that would be my pick uh, to win, or at least the, the, the team to root for if Duke was somehow not in the ACC. And I think now we can preview uh, the games coming up this week. So let's start off with Syracuse. Uh, we travel to Syracuse on Wednesday night. It's a 7 o'clock Eastern tip-off on ESPN, and it's our first and only meeting with the Orange. Uh, Jason has taken a look at Syracuse, so Jason, tell us a little bit about what we can expect on Wednesday. Well, uh, so first thing to expect is it's probably going to be a close game. Um, not only has Duke played a fair number of close games lately, but Syracuse has played seven straight games. They were all decided by 10 points or less, including a couple overtime games. Um, they've lost two games in a row. Uh, they, played, they played Georgia Tech you know, later this evening. But they, uh, they, they lost at Pitt, and they lost in overtime to Louisville. Um, so they're, you know, they're a little bit desperate right now. They're 8-6 and six in the ACC with four games left to go. And they've got the, the ACC designed a very weird schedule for, the, for Syracuse. In their, their final five games are two games against Louisville, two games against Georgia Tech, with a Duke game sandwiched in between. So... You know, you don't play everybody in the ACC twice. We talked about that. In fact, there are not many teams that you play twice. Well, the teams that Syracuse plays twice, they're playing at the very end of the season, like in their final five games. It's it's kind of it's it's sort of strange. And 
you know, Syracuse is a team that even though they are eight and six in the ACC, and and you would think with with you know some home games left, and and with with Georgia Tech, there's a pretty good chance they're going to win nine, probably, uh, you know, maybe even ten games, um, in the conference. Uh, they are very very much on the bubble because they were terrible earlier in the year. Um, we were mocking them coming in the ACC season. They were clearly the ACC team that had underperformed by 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 a tremendous amount coming into the ACC season, and and they didn't even start out ACC season all that well. Um, they 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 lost. Didn't they lose to BC? I'm trying to remember. I, wait, I need to check my schedule again for for Syracuse. I'm pretty sure they lost to BC. They early did. In they, the... they lost to BC pretty badly early in the ACC season. They basically yeah. They basically played their old Big East schedule through like from November through the beginning of January and got crushed by everybody. <laughs> right, right. BC, Miami, Pitt, Virginia Tech, BC again. Yeah, and they they lost to BC. That, well, to and, that, and that includes losses to Connecticut and Georgetown along the way. Right, and right, John's. exactly, and St. John's, so, and and they got killed by St. John's. Who's this was when good. this was when everybody thought St. John's might be good. Yeah, and and when everyone was sure that Syracuse was terrible. Well, here's the reality: Syracuse may have been terrible back in December and early January, but they've been pretty darn good lately. Um, they are led by uh, senior transfer uh, Andrew White, um, Andrew White the third. Uh, and he's one of these guys. He is the true definition of a journeyman. He played two years at Kansas and basically couldn't get off the bench at Kansas. He barely played at all for for KU. So he transferred to Nebraska, and he, you know he had to sit out a season before he tra- before he played for Nebraska. So after playing one year at Nebraska, and he was pretty good at Nebraska. He averaged about 15, 16 points a game. After playing one year at Nebraska, he was now a graduate. He'd played he'd been in college for four years. So he graduate transferred to Syracuse. So he's on his third school now. Um, he's a grad transfer, immediately eligible at Syracuse, and he's averaging 18 points a game. He is a really nice outside shooter. He hits almost 40% of his threes. Um, he has scored 13 or more points in every single ACC game, and in fact, he scored 20 or more points in all of Syracuse's last seven games. Um, he shoots a lot of three-pointers. He's taken more than 10 three-pointers in in four of the last seven games for Syracuse. This is a guy who puts up a ton of shots. He's a 6'7 wing, um, so he's kind of long and, and bigger than a lot of the guys who typically guard him. But I, I think you're going to see Uncle Matty, you're going to see Matt Jones all over Andrew White the third in this game. And um, if there's been one thing that we know about Duke this year, it's that whoever Matt Jones is guarding will not have a good game. So their second best player is um, sophomore forward Tyler Lydon, um, who has really nice touch um, and skill for a six-nine big man. Um, I think he'll be a very interesting matchup for Jason Tatum. I- I'm I'm sure that you'll see Tatum on him, uh, you know, pretty much constantly. And uh, you know, if if Tatum can can play Lydon to a standstill and Matt Jones can control Andrew White the third, Syracuse doesn't have much of a chance in this game because because after those two guys, they they aren't that good a team. Uh, I'm sup- I, they're they're one of the worst defensive teams uh, that that uh, Jim Beheim has had. Beheim plays the you know the the, the this this zone defense, um, uh, a typical two three zone. <laughs> Jason, where you he... speak of it. I like the way that you say that they play this zone defense. You have such disdain for it. <laughs> oh well, I, I I'm not a fan of zone defense in general. Although Jim Beheim plays a really good zone, I mean the Syracuse zone 
is is a special zone defense and the the way they play it uh, Bayheim recruits nothing but guys who are long you got to be long if you're going to go to Syracuse and the way he plays his zone is he expects his really long players to close out on the shooters fast and to use their length to use their speed and athleticism to to not give up easy shots over the top of the zone and most years Syracuse is very very effective at that they have struggled this year because they have not been that effective at it um they're only number 92 on defense in Ken Palm. And, um, you know, putting up 70, 80 points against Syracuse is a lot easier this year than it has been in years past. Uh, but I, I, like, I like this game for Duke. Um, look, it's tough to say. We, we talked about this earlier. You don't know who Duke is going to run out there. If we don't have Jefferson or, and, and Allen for some reason in this game, it, it could make it a lot more difficult for us. But... Um, uh, I think Syracuse is going to have some trouble stopping Duke, and I think that Matt Jones is going to be a really difficult matchup for Andrew White the third. Um, if he doesn't have a good game from the field, if he doesn't have a good game from three-point land, uh, it could be really tough for Syracuse to keep up with with this Duke team, especially the way we're playing lately, uh, the way we're playing offensively, very efficient on offense. Uh, so that's my preview of Syracuse, Syracuse Orangeman. When you think about the Syracuse zone and going back to the to the rotation and who's going to be playing, it, it might be a good opportunity for us to see Harry Giles because if Giles is is getting healthier, having him in the middle of that zone, he might be able to to create a lot of offense that it is probably harder for him to do against a traditional defense. Just a thought. I'm not I'm not sure if that will happen, but it would be interesting to see. Yeah, and and I'll tell you the other thing is um, Syracuse doesn't really so the. The big man that they play most of the time is uh, Tareen Thompson, who's a freshman. Um, they also play Tyler Roberson some uh, in the middle. He's he's an experienced senior, but he hasn't playing that much for them, um, and he isn't a you know a a, a really great um, uh, offensive player. Tareen Thompson isn't a great offensive player. Syracuse doesn't run a lot of offense through the inside. Occasionally they go to Tyler Lydon down there, but um, they're mostly a perimeter offensive team. And, and I think it could be a good game for Giles because we won't need him to be guarding. Look, if you put Giles on, on John Collins, that might have been a, you know, especially with the switching that had to happen, that might have been a disaster for Duke. Um, and that may be one reason we didn't see Giles in, in that game against Wake very much. Uh, Syracuse, I think, I agree with you, could be a better matchup for him. And the other thing is an athletic guy on the inside against a zone um, you know, he could find a lot of offensive rebounding opportunities for himself. Awesome. Well, that's going to be a, a game to watch. Do we have anything else on Syracuse, or do we want to move on? No, I think that was a great preview by Jason. I do. I agree. Uh, so let's move on to the uh, Miami game. We'll travel after the Syracuse game. Saturday, we go to Coral Gables to take on the U. Uh, it will be a 4 p.m. tip-off on CBS. So since we already played them earlier in the year, you recall that that was the game we had the 20 nothing run. Uh, in the second half, uh, back on January 21st. Why don't you guys each just give me one key to victory this weekend in Coral Gables? Sam, I'll start with you. So in the, in the previous game, Duke kind of matched with Miami on rebounding. I'd like to see Duke out-rebound this Miami team. I think that Duke's getting better on the glass as, as the year has gone on, and I think that it's going to be key for us to get the rebounds at both ends. Um, the, uh, Jason Tatum has gotten, has gotten better at the rebounding. Uh, throughout the ACC season. Um, you know, again, if we see more of Giles, hopefully, hopefully we see him bringing down rebounds. And I think that that'll be key 
against this Miami team that we know is pretty good. They have they've they've actually been playing really well in the ACC. They're eight and six. They're not going to win the conference, but um, they they could they could come close. They they're in contention for uh, for one of those top four seeds in the in the ACC tournament. See, and I think I think the the one key thing I want to point out is um, Miami is going to be geeked. They're going to be really geeked up for this game because they're going to, they're a desperate team right now. And it seems crazy to say that someone who's eight and six in the ACC is desperate, but I'm going to tell you why. Miami has four games left in their schedule. Three of those games are on the road. They're playing at UVA. They're playing at Virginia Tech. They're playing at Florida State. Um, All good that teams. Is, that, that is three really, really rough road games. Miami has one home game left, and it's against Duke. So it's going to be senior night. They're going to be, you know, they're going to be geeked up, and and there may be eight and six right now, but are they going to be a favorite in any of their remaining games? At UVA, at Virginia Tech, at FSU, and home against Duke. What's the most no, likely game? They, they won't be favored in any of those games, and probably, if you had to really say it, the most likely game they're going to win, maybe the, at Virginia Tech, but probably the home game against Duke is the game that they may see as the one they have the best chance of winning. And a win against Duke, if it gets you to nine ACC wins, probably puts Miami in the tournament. Um, but... If it doesn't, if you lose that game and lose the other ones and you go 8-10 and 10 in the ACC, you're not making the NCAA tournament unless you go on a run in the ACC tournament. So my key is don't let them get too excited. Don't let them get too geeked up. This is a team that really, really will be ready to play, you know, off emotion against Duke. And there's one other thing that's going to feed the emotion. Jaquan Newton, who may be their best player. Probably, uh, you know, Donald, you watch them more than I do. Is Jaquan Newton their best player? Absolutely. Okay, Jaquan Newton is their best player. He's on a three-game suspension. He's missing three games. Guess who he's going to come back for? Guess what his first game back is? That's right. The Duke game. The Duke game. <laughs> so, uh, you know, he's only a junior. He's not a senior. But Jaquan Newton and all these other guys are going to be – they're going to be way up. So we can't let them ride emotion um, and ride desperation to, to run us out of the building early. Um, that's my key to the game. And I'm glad you guys mentioned the, those two keys because when I, I obviously I, I watch Miami a lot, uh, there were three things that I would take away. You guys mentioned the first two, so I'm glad you did. The third one is uh, dribble drive penetration. We need to stop that. Uh, that is where they get a lot of their scoring chances. They drive into the lane, they dish to the, the big tall guys underneath and get easy baskets, lay in the dunks, all that stuff, and get a lot of putback uh, on rebounds. All of that's going to tie into can we stop their dribble penetration? If we can, that is going to really feed our offense because they're not going to score a lot on, on offense uh, with, without that dribble penetration. They don't shoot the ball too well from the outside, and they like to get a lot of their points in the paint. So if we can stop their, their dribble drive penetration, penetration is going to make everything uh, a lot easier for us, uh, even though, it, as you guys said, it will be a tough game with it being their final home game of the season. All right, now that we're done with the previews, we have a couple of topics we want to get into before we do Player of the Week and Party Shots. The first one is a, a bit of news that came not necessarily as a shock, but the way it's being implemented is a shock. Mark Godfrey was fired uh, as coach at NC State, but he will finish the season. 
uh, at NC State, and it sparked a lot of uh, reaction from not just people in the ACC, but coaches outside the ACC, John Calipari being one of them. Uh, NC State and Mark Godfrey's five years have made the tournament four times in the Sweet 16 two of those years. Uh, but for some reason, they decided they wanted to A, fire him midseason, and B, uh, tell him to finish out said season. Uh, I'm going to start with you, Jason. Give me your reaction to this and, and kind of the reaction, the fallout of, of inside the ACC and outside the ACC about it. So it it's really unusual for a coach to be fired, you know, at this point in the season with uh, they, they at the time they had five games. I'm sorry, they had four games left. Um plus the ACC tournament. Uh, and, I mean, State has had a really, really disappointing season. They're just 3-12 and 12 in the ACC. So when they fired him, they were 3-11. and 11. Um, So even if, they, even if they ran the table, obviously if they win the ACC tournament, they would make the NCAA. But even if they ran the table, they were not going to make the NCAA tournament. Um, but but uh, uh, John Calipari, you know, went on a rant last night because... He was so upset about uh, a member of the coaching brethren, you know, one of his, uh, and I think he, he, you know, he knows Gottfried um, uh, back from when Gottfried was coaching at Alabama. I think that they, you know, they knew each other back then. Um, and the coaching community is, is, is a fairly tight community. He, he was really upset that a guy was fired at this point in the season, you know, before the season was over and that, and that they even said, oh yeah, you're, you're fired, but coach us the final few games. It's kind of, it, it's, it's crazy. I thought that I had heard that. that I thought that I had heard that Gottfried asked to to remain coaching the team and that they let him, which changes that story a little bit. But I, I don't know if that if that was the same news that you saw. Uh, but to me, that that's almost immaterial. It's sort of it's just really strange. Uh, and and I I don't know what NC State is thinking. I think NC State still. I mean, Gottfried's done a fairly good job at State. They've made the tournament under him, uh, you know, on multiple occasions. He, he even got him to the Sweet 16 a couple times, I believe. I'm I'm both not surprised and surprised that they pulled the trigger on this. His recruiting for next year is very poor. He's clearly going to lose Dennis Smith after this year, and and their prospects for next year don't look very good. But boy, I I really don't know about about firing him at this point in the season. I think it's going to give other coaches a, a, a sour taste in their mouth, and I think that. There's starting to be this belief that NC State is living a lot in the past, that they still think they are a big, big-time program that should be making Final Fours um, the, way they, the way they did under Valvano, the way they did when David Thompson was there in the 70s and the 80s, and that NC State maybe doesn't realize where they are in the hierarchy. And it, as a result, if you're a coach, you're going to be nervous about taking the, the NC State job because... If you, you know, if you aren't always in the top half of the ACC, NC State's going to be mad at you and, and, and fire you. Um, because that's sort of, I mean, Gottfried's had them mostly in the top half of the ACC, and, and now they're not, and, and he's out the door. Um, and I think maybe State fans think they're going to get something a lot better than him. I think they think they're going to get Archie Miller, who played at NC State. I think they think they're going to get him from, uh, from Dayton. Um, but Archie Miller's doing really, really well at Dayton, and I... I don't. I don't know that state's going to get the caliber of coach that they think they are for this job. Could be. Could be tough for them. Um, I, I'm. I'm a little baffled that they made this move. It, it feels kind of rash. Um, although state has been awful this year, and 
uh, I, I was talking to some friends when State was playing North Carolina, the game, you know, the final game that Gottfried had before he got fired. Uh, and, and I was like, God, I mean, State was getting blown out as they have every time they played Carolina this year. They, you know, very little effort. <clears throat> they don't play defense at all, NC State, all season long. Uh, and and I said to a, 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 an email list I was on, I was like, what's worse than phoning it in? Because State isn't even phoning this in. And a friend of mine, Rob Wilderman, texted back and he said, they're texting it in, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, uh, this has been a really bad season for NC State. Maybe maybe Godfrey does deserve to be fired after after the, the uh, you know how poorly they've played with with someone as good as Dennis Smith leading the team. Yeah, I I my only concern for NC State is. I don't know what better coach they're going to entice to come. Um, and I, I think that there's, there's a lot of, you know, you mentioned about them living in the past. It's not clear what their expectations are, but, um, you know, coaches around the country are probably looking at the situation there and thinking that ain't the job for me right now. Um, and it's not that it's not that you can't compete in the ACC because I think, you know, Jim Laranega's done a great job of, of bringing his program up to being competitive. Leonard Hamilton's done it you know, in, in, in recent years for programs that are not traditionally top basketball programs. And even, even Mike Bray, you can talk about him. Notre Dame has a little bit more history, um, but there are just so many good teams in the conference right now. And the, those very best coaches don't seem like they're letting up anytime soon. It seems like a really hard ask to say, Hey, come coach an, an ACC team that really hasn't been that successful recently relative to the rest of the conference. Um, you know, and in a situation where People aren't exactly sure what the direction is. Debbie Yao might not be there very long. Um, I, I don't know how good of a coach they're going to be able to find. And and the cupboard is not stocked. Um, right. He, Godfrey does not have. He I think he has one recruit for next year. He does not have whoever's you know, he, whoever's he's coming a nice next. Job. Yeah, whoever's coming next. It's a full on rebuild. And, they, and right. So so whoever's whoever's coming next, if they get a coach of any decent caliber you know if they're, if they're getting like a really good mid-major coach or if they're getting a, a high major coach to move from another program it's going to have to be with a lot of money and a lot of years and and i i just don't know if they're going to be able to do that and i wonder if they get the uh, i mean john calipari was talking about the uh deal where he's like i'm going to put in my contract that if you fire me mid-season you got to pay me three million dollars that might spur or, or i don't want to say spur that might deter some of these mid-major coaches from taking the chance on NC State because of how they've handled the situation. That's always something that coaches look at when they uh, examine a move to a, another uh, school. Uh, and I think the coach that they need to get is going to have to be some coach that can recruit North Carolina, the state of North Carolina, uh, better. And, because that's where a lot of the talent is. And that's why NC State thinks they are a better program than they actually are is because they live in a, in a, they're, they're centered on tobacco road between two great schools, uh, two great programs and in a state that is rich with talent. And I think that is what has been missing the last couple of years, even though with Mark Godfrey, he's had cat Barber, he's had Dennis Smith. He's had some great players. They just haven't quite put it all together. And I think NC State is going to have to find a coach that can recruit the state of North Carolina very well. But who is that? Is it, do they go after a coach that's already in the state that's been, um, that has those contacts? Or do they go after someone from a mid-major school in a mid-major conference that's not close to the Southeast and think that you know, that would be enough? I don't know what that's going to be, but it, it's kind of put NC State in kind of a – they've kind of put themselves in a, in a bad situation. 
with regards to if Mark Godfrey, if they do run the table and make the NCAA tournament, are they still going to fire him? Like, I mean, if they if they make a good run and make it where it's the, the record is still kind of respectable, do they still fire him? Like, and, and there's going to be a lot of pressure from alums and boosters and fans about what the next step is, what the plan is. I don't think they really have one yet. So I got an interesting thought for you guys. Here is why I think the NC State job could be really, really attractive. You ready? Go ahead. Do it. So if you think Carolina is about to get slapped with some major sanctions, if you think Carolina is going to be a place, uh, you know, either as a result of sanctions that cut down on the number of scholarships or as a result of postseason sanctions that make them not an attractive destination for, for recruits, then you could think suddenly the state of North Carolina is a lot easier to recruit in if you are NC State. There are a heck of a lot of kids in Carolina who grew up as UNC fans hating Duke and sort of being eh, indifferent to NC State and Wake Forest, but they grew up hating Duke and would not consider going to Duke. And if suddenly North Carolina is not an option, is NC State suddenly a more attractive, more interesting option for the top talent in the state of North Carolina. It's, I mean, a, it's like an interesting point. thought. I think that I think that competing with the rest of the ACC is also part of the challenge here. Yes, and I think that Wake is on the rise. We've mentioned Wake on the podcast, and and you know how much I like Danny Manning. And and the reality is to to compete with the top of the ACC. You know, there are probably no more than two, maybe three guys in the state of North Carolina in a given year who who really can make a huge difference for you in competing with the top of the ACC. It's just the the quality of recruit that you need, the quality of player that you need to, to rise to the top six or so in the ACC doesn't necessarily come around very often. So um, maybe, maybe my theory is bad, but uh, I don't know. It, it could be an interesting reason someone might think uh, the NC State job is a little tiny bit more attractive than, than the, the, the tire fire that it appears to be at the moment. No, I think that's a good point. And I think, and to kind of wrap it up, I think when you, I'm combining your, your thought with what Sam just said. And I think you are competing with the rest of the ACC because, you know, yes, while North Carolina may be, that stature may be diminished a little bit with the sanctions that are impending, you still have, you know, Duke recruits in, in, the bigger guys in North Carolina, but you also have UVA taps in North Carolina, Clemson, you know, Georgia tech and all these schools that, you know, can go down and realistically say to these recruits, Hey, you may not be in the state of North Carolina, but that doesn't mean that you are not accessible, you know, that our games are going to be on TV every single night with, you know, and, and your, your family and your friends are going to be able to watch you every single game because the ACC uh, is a national conference, essentially. And, and you're going to be able to – it's not going to be where if you don't go to UNC or NC State, you won't be able to have that experience of home. People are going to be able to still get exposure through these other schools. And so I wonder if that means that you have to recruit a coach that can think about that and how to stave off these approaches from – uh, the rest of the ACC, some of the you know SEC teams like South Carolina, uh, Tennessee, also tap into North Carolina uh, high school talent for their programs as well. So it's a, it's a big state when it comes to basketball, and I think the next coach of NC State is going to have to recognize that, but also not put themselves in a position where they are still looking up to UNC. 
they probably want a coach that thinks that they're on that level, even though they're not. But I think that's the kind of approach that they're probably taking. The question is, what is the plan for that process? And I don't think they have one. I think that's what's going to be kind of fleshed out over the next couple of weeks. This story has still got me laughing, and we're going to talk about it a little bit. Um, for those of you who have, have not been uh, under a rock the last couple of days, uh, the story came out a couple of days ago about Kyrie Irving uh, when being interviewed uh, at the All-Star game, or I guess the, the weekend has started. Uh, we, the All-Star game would be tonight. The, there was a question put to him, and he talked about the fact that he uh, thought the world was flat. And the, the American press, the media, the fans took that and ran with it for a good 48 hours. And the jokes came out. People kind of talked about, you know, Duke education. Uh, I got a lot of texts and tweets from people about what we're teaching at, uh, at, at the Gothic Wonderland about the world being flat. Uh, and it turns out that Kyrie was just trolling everybody uh, because earlier yesterday uh, he really broke down the fact that, guys, this is, this is not a story, but you guys made it a story. And the reason why I knew it was going to be a story is because that is what the, how the American media works nowadays. Uh, he, so for the record, Kyrie does not think the world is flat. Uh, he was not taught that at Duke University, contrary to what haters may think. Uh, I just want to get your reaction to this whole kind of uh, fiasco that kind of took the world by storm for, uh, at least the sports world by storm for a couple of days. Uh, Jason, I'll start with you. Well, I mean, in fairness, he didn't, he didn't directly say, I know the earth is round and I was just kidding. What he said is, this, the fact that this blew up into a story is silly and I was making a point about how absurd the media can be and how crazy stuff, fake news, can turn into real stories and, and it, it just shows that the media isn't paying attention to what really matters. But, but to be fair, Kyrie has not spoken the words to say that the earth is not flat. That said, I think we all know he was just trolling. I think we know that this was just... You know, he was just trying to get a rise out of some people. It, it, he actually, I think he actually said it in response to a question like, do you believe in aliens? And he was like, you know, sort of riffing on, on the notion of, of hoaxes and theories and conspiracies and stuff. And he's like, yeah, and I, I think the earth is flat. Um, and then he, you know, got into a little bit of a discussion about it. But I kind of agree with Kyrie. It's sort of like, this is just silly. This, it, it, it's not it doesn't mean anything and uh anyone who thinks there's some reflection on duke and on a duke education in this i mean come on that's that's absurd uh and i would also point out that um Kyrie Irving does not have a degree from duke university he only went there for one year <laughs> oh no no correction i believe this then this came out of i believe in 2015 he finally earned enough to walk graduation. I believe technically he does now have his degree. He obviously finished it after I haven't verified it yet, but I think that came out in a report that he that seems, actually had that seems enough like something that, that would get more publicity. Um, uh, you would think so. Uh, but again, that probably goes to further prove his point. Well, I, my, I, I my only know that my only, my only take here is that uh, I claim no responsibility. 
because I am a graduate of the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University and not the Trinity College of Arts and Sciences. I don't know what they're teaching y'all on the main quad, uh, and I don't especially care to find out. That's it. <laughs> Donald, I want to point out there, there was an article um, July of last year where Kyrie said that, he, that while he had hoped to get his degree, um, that he has, for the moment, put it on hold. Um, and that he, uh, you know, he's hoping to make progress, um, but, uh, but he doesn't have his degree yet. And this was, again, this was uh, in, um, in July of, of last year. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, so I, guess I, I think he doesn't have his degree yet. He's getting a credit as an executive producer of a, of a film before he gets a degree from Duke University. Uncle Drew. That was, That's right. Dude, that was going to be my parting shot. It's going to be my parting shot. Oh, man. Well, then we'll save it. Go ahead. We'll save it. All right, guys. Let's, let's end this uh, podcast with uh, Players of the Week and Party Shots. We'll start with Player of the Week, and I will kick it to you, Sam. Who is your Player of the Week? Uh, simply for his performance in the second half against UVA, I think it's an easy choice for me this week, Jason Tatum. Jason? Yeah, I'm, uh, I, have a, I have a feeling this will be unanimous. Um, Jason, what Jason Tatum did against Virginia would be more than enough, even if he had been terrible against Wake Forest, as it was. He scored 19 points against Wake Forest and was our leading rebound. I think it was our leading rebound. I, I lost the box score, so I'm not sure at the moment, but uh, uh, he was one of our leading rebounders against Wake Forest. I do think... I will say, I thought his defense against Wake Forest was pretty poor. <laughs> he didn't do a great job on D. So uh, after having an amazing, amazing week on offense, maybe Jason Tatum can focus a little more on defense. But, but he was definitely my player of the week. Uh, yeah, I'm going to make it three for three. Jason Tatum, player of the week for me. Uh, again, for his second half against uh, UVA, for his play at, against Wake Forest, he was dominant all week. And I think that was... He was one of the reasons we bo- we won both games. His consistent play, his just otherworldly play in the second half, and being being just ice ice cold uh, against UVA was just awesome to watch. So keep it up, man. Player of the week, Jason Tatum. It's unanimous. And now we will kick it to parting shots. I will start with Jason since we kind of got a hint of what his was. Yeah. So I was going to comment about the fact that um, it has been announced that uh, Kyrie Irving will be starring in an Uncle Drew film. Um, If you've been under a rock and are not aware, Uncle Drew is a character that Kyrie Irving plays in commercials for Pepsi. Um, they, they, They dress Kyrie Irving up like he's an old man, and he goes out to playgrounds, um, and he plays, you know, with hidden cameras, he plays with the guys there. And at first he seems like this old guy who doesn't, who can't do anything. And then he eventually sort of, you know, remembers what a great player he was. And so this old guy with a gray beard and gray hair who, who, you know, looks like he could barely play basketball goes out there and, and does what Kyrie Irving can do on the basketball court, which is just crazy, ridiculous stuff. Um, and I think an Uncle Drew film will be a lot, lot, lot of fun. Uh, the reason they're doing this, by the way, is that there was unbelievable demand for Uncle Drew t-shirts and, and other gear and things like that. And just a couple days ago, uh, they launched an online store. This didn't get as much attention as the Uncle Drew film, but uh, UncleDrew.com, you can buy Uncle Drew gear on UncleDrew.com. Um, and, uh, and, and Pepsi is planning <clears throat> Pepsi is planning on 
uh, putting out more Uncle Drew commercials, and they're going to really be part of the marketing arm of this movie. I think it's a lot of fun. I think it'll be, uh, you know, amusing. I'm not quite sure how the concept is going to to work over the course of an entire hour and 45 minute movie, but uh, you know, I'm sure they'll do a nice job with it um, because there's there's a, a lot of marketing money behind this stuff, and and I think it's kind of cool. It's sort of fun, and I I like that that Kyrie is uh, is going to get a chance to continue to develop this character and it is worth noting um that Kyrie Irving directed the first of the Uncle Drew commercials I'm not sure he's directed all of them but but he played a huge major role he wasn't just the star he played a role behind the scenes in putting those commercials together um and uh you know we talked about the fact that he doesn't have his duke degree yet but this is a guy who's He's doing things off the basketball court that that matter, and will build a career for him, and that's that's pretty cool. So, tip of the Jason, hat to Kyrie the, Irving for. Is the yeah. Uncle Drew movie going to appear in your top uh, winter or summer movie list on the uh, DBR off-topic forum? <laughs> we'll see. Once it gets a release date, we'll have to see where it falls. That's um, right. I I I suspect that it will not be a two hundred plus million dollar box office hit, but you never know. I'd love to be you surprised at that. Sam. Okay. Um, so I was going to quickly mention that uh, I, I, I said last week that I was going to the uh, Duke-Denver lacrosse game this weekend. So that was yesterday. I actually had to watch the Wake Forest game on tape delay because, uh, because I was at the lacrosse game, which Duke sadly lost. Um, it, you don't just you, – they always say you can't just come to Denver and expect to get a win against the Pioneers. They're a, they're a tough squad. They're actually ranked number one in the country. So – uh, but it was fun. It was it was great seeing a lot of Duke people out there. The other thing I wanted to mention, the more important thing I wanted to mention, did you guys notice during the Wake Forest game? They, or yeah, Wake Forest game, they kept cutting. You know when when the sometimes they 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 cut the camera to show the players' parents. So they were cutting to Luke Kennard's parents a lot when he was making shots, and um, so they we we saw them a lot throughout the game and. And like towards the end, it was like three minutes left or two minutes left. They cut to Luke Kennard's father, and all of a sudden, he was wearing a hat that he hadn't been before. Yeah, and I just, <laughs> I noticed I just want to know, I want to know why Luke Kennard's dad put on a hat with like three minutes left in the game when he wasn't wearing one the rest of the game. That's it. <laughs> that, that, that was that was the that was the most confounding thing yesterday. <laughs> no, that was I. I remember seeing that and like kind of to myself was like, was he wearing a hat earlier in the game? Like I have no idea. Not. He was not. Sam, you have good eyes. I, I did not notice that. <laughs> uh, th- these are the kinds of things that I watch for, especially when I'm watching a game where I know the outcome. So, Oh, you were watching on delay. See, I was watching live, so I was like, oh, my God, are we going to win this game? You were watching. Yeah, I, I, knew, I knew we were going to win by five, and I, and I was following when I was at the lacrosse game. I was following the game on my phone, just like the score. So I was freaking out a little bit, but there was like, I can't really – freak out too much about this and I can't get the, the video feed to come up. So I'm just going to wait till later to worry about it. Uh, and we ended up winning. So I was watching being like, okay, well, you know, team's not playing well, but, but they're going to end up winning the game at the end. So I was, I was looking for all the silly stuff. So my parting shot uh, is one that was pretty cool yesterday. Also at the game. Uh, if you guys remember, if you guys noticed, uh, Jeff Capel's dad uh, was sitting on the bench as an honorary coach uh, and the players, I'm sorry, not players, the coaches were wearing uh, pins that said ALS on them. Uh, if you guys recall the story about Jeff Capel uh, that he wrote in the Players' Tribune a couple weeks back about the, the struggles that he's had with dealing with his father 
uh, being diagnosed with ALS. And I thought it was a really cool touch uh, from Coach K and the staff to allow uh, Jeff Capel II uh, to sit on the bench and take in the game with his son uh, and the rest of the team and be a part of the staff for uh, a game. So my hat is tipped to Coach K, Coach Capel, and the entire staff. I think that was a touching little way to uh, show some love to, to Jeff Capel, who's going through uh, battling a difficult disease, and I think that was an awesome uh, sight to see. Very cool. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad was, you mentioned was, that. It was extremely cool. Extremely cool. You don't see, you don't see Coach K. I, I, I think people know that Coach K has like causes that he supports, and you know he has the Emily K Center, and he wears the, a couple of pins on his jacket for, for different causes, but he's not that outspoken about anything. So to, to have a gesture that is this public and, and you know, this open, I think was really neat. And I thought the cool thing was that he, you know, it wasn't like he was just sitting on the bench and watching the game. There was times it, when they panned over to him, you could see him lean in and, and talk to uh, his son about what was going on. And his son is kind of, you know, telling him what they're seeing and what he's seeing. And, and he, he was, he was, it was more than just him sitting on the bench and taking in the game from the bench. He was talking with his son about it. He, you could tell they were talking about, you know, what kind of formations and what kind of schemes that defensive schemes they were trying to do. Uh, and it was more about him being a participant that I thought was the, the grandest gesture. Uh, you know, you could sit anybody on a bench and, and, and get the public points for it, but to have him, you know, be able to speak, speak up when, when they were, when the game was going on, I think that is a much better tribute. And I think that will do it for uh, episode 72 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Uh, and we will check you guys back next week. We will obviously uh, recap the games that go on and preview uh, the second big game against Carolina. But for now, for Jason, for Sam, I am Donald. Thank you guys very much. And Duke Band, take us home. Jiminy Christmas. 